0: In Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, it's not the typical passage you would put above your kitchen table in your house, unless you're really into genealogies, but it's a record of the many fathers that went before Jesus. So I'd ask you to stand as we read Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17. This is a record of the family line of Jesus Christ. He is the son of David. He is also the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Tamar was their mother. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. And Salmon was the father of Boaz. Rahab was Boaz's mother. Boaz was the father of Obed. Ruth was Obed's mother. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. Solomon's mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amon. Amon was the father of Josiah. And Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. At that time, the Jewish people were forced to go away to Babylon. And after this, the family line continued. Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abuid, Abued was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of jacob Jacob was the father of Joseph. Joseph was the husband of Mary, and Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called Christ. So there were 14 generations from Abraham to David. There were 14 from David until the Jewish people were forced to go away to Babylon. And there were 14 from that time to Christ. Please be seated.
1: I emailed Mark this week and told him that he didn't have to read this week, but he took it on and did quite well. This is the passage, of course, that begins not only the Gospel of Matthew, but all the Gospels and the whole New Testament. Now, say somebody decides they're going to read the New Testament, and the first thing that they encounter is this list of names. From our perspective, I think that Matthew makes a bit of a blunder here. The Old Testament has a much better opening. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it goes from there to a scene of chaos and formlessness, the spirit brooding over the primordial waters, and the voice of God speaks, and light and earth and sea and living things spring into being. It's good reading. By comparison, Matthew seems all a little dry. Why would he start what is to him and to us the greatest story imaginable with this list of names? Well, the Jews loved genealogies. They loved hearing the names of their ancestors. Like most ancient cultures without iPods or TVs, they were a storytelling culture. They entertained themselves in the telling of stories. And the genealogies were catalysts for stories. When they heard a name, they'd remember the story that went with that name. So genealogies were vitally important to them. They also established heritage and identity, linking them to their people. Genealogies were linked to legal status, property rights, and inheritance issues. So Matthew's opening with a statement that a Jewish listener or reader could hardly have found actually more gripping the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now with just this sentence, Matthew is doing three things. And I'll mention them in reverse order. First, he links Jesus to Abraham. story of Abraham begins in Genesis chapter 12 where God says to him, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So from this word to their first patriarch, the Jewish people rightly understood that somehow they were a special people of God, and that through them God would do something that would be a blessing to all other nations. And the rest of the Bible is an outworking of that promise of God to Abraham. Secondly, Matthew links Jesus to David. In Israel's history, David was the ideal king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, after David has expressed his desire to build God a house, God's response is, I don't need a house, thank you very much, but the Lord will build you a house And then God makes a promise concerning David's son, Solomon, but also a promise that points beyond Solomon to a kingdom and a throne. He says, David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And from this then came the expectation of a coming king who would reign forever over God's people. So these are the two great covenant promises to Israel's father and to Israel's greatest king. A blessing for all nations and an eternal kingdom established through the house and the line of David. So Matthew traces Jesus' heritage through David and Abraham. Third thing Matthew does is he calls Jesus the Christ. Christ or in the Hebrew, Messiah. In Israel's history of submission to a series of conquering empires, ending up with the Romans, the expected Messiah was a kingly leader who would establish Israel as a preeminent nation among all the nations and would rule forever over the others. And that this Messiah would be the one who sits on the throne and rules over not just God's people, but over the earth. And Jesus, says Matthew, is the final fulfillment of God's word to Abraham to bless all the nations, the culmination of God's word to David concerning an eternal kingdom, and that blessing would come through Israel. A kingdom would be the kingdom of God. Enter Jesus, the Messiah, in the line of David the king and Abraham. And then Matthew goes on to lay out the genealogy from Abraham through David to Jesus. Look at the names in Jesus' pedigree, some of the greatest names in Jewish history Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the kings, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, the leaders of rubble. That's how Matthew begins his gospel. And no other beginning could have been more impactful to those who heard this or read this for the first time. But along the way, Matthew does something that is very surprising. He includes some names that his readers would not expect to see. So early on, verse 3, we read about Abraham's great grandson and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, and so on. Tamar. Who do you think a geneal- genealogical line would be traced through? The father or the mother? father as is this genealogy and you wouldn't you wouldn't normally see women included in a genealogy it just wouldn't happen women didn't establish bloodline women didn't have property rights but matthew against all convention is different he includes a woman Tamar. Now, I said a moment ago that when Jews heard certain names, they would remember their stories. Well, the story of Tamar is not a pretty story. Mothers probably sent their kids to bed if someone started telling this story. It's not in children's Bibles. Haven't seen it in any Sunday school curriculum or even adult Bible study, for that matter. Tamar's story is found in Genesis 38. Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and great-grandson of Abraham. Tamar was a Canaanite woman and was married to Judah's eldest son. But because he was so thoroughly wicked, God had him put to death. In keeping with custom, she was then given to the next oldest son, who was wicked and also was judged by God and died. So Judah, afraid for his third son's life, sent Tamar away to her father's house ostensibly until his third son would come of age. But when he does come of age, Judah does not fulfill his obligation. He breaks his covenant with Tamar. Then Judah's wife dies. And Tamar hears about it, dresses herself up as a prostitute, and hangs out at the side of the road. And when Judah comes by, he does not recognize her and sleeps with her. And as a pledge, until he can pay her, he leaves his staff and his seal with her. A few months later, Judah is told that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. So he commands that she be brought before him and be burned to death. So Tamar is brought But she brings the staff and the seal and says, before you do this, you need to know that I am pregnant by the man who owns this staff and this seal. And Judah, publicly humiliated, then realizes what he has done and he says, I have treated her wrongly. She has acted more rightly than I have. And he calls off the execution, of course. this is not a happy story. Sex, deceit, the brutal nature of Judah is highlighted in this story. The wickedness of his family is highlighted. Tamar goes on to give birth. She gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. And it is from the line of Perez that Jesus comes. And just by mentioning Tamar, Matthew is drawing attention to one of the most unsavory episodes in the life of the Jewish patriarchs. And that out of this episode is born one of the ancestors of the Messiah. Why on earth would Matthew go out of his way to mention this? Matthew is not done yet. He goes on. In Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon, father of Boaz, by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and so on. Rahab, by Rahab's time, Israel is no longer a clan, but it is a nation, but Rahab is not one of them. She, too, is a Canaanite. She is a pagan. The Jews have been slaves in Egypt for a long time. They've only just recently been freed, and they're coming now to Canaan to conquer it as the land that God will give them. And the first city that is going to fall to them is the city of Jericho. Rahab lived in Jericho. And unlike Tamar, she doesn't just dress up as a prostitute. She really was a prostitute. So Joshua sends spies into Jericho to check things out and they end up at Rahab's house and she protects them. The king of the city finds out that spies have come. He sends soldiers out to take them and Rahab hides the spies. And Rahab says to them, we all in Jericho, we all know that God is going to give this city to you. And when that happens, Because I have helped you, you please have mercy on me. And the spies say, well, because you saved our life, we'll save yours. When we come to the city, you stay here in your house with any family that you've got. And we will make sure that you are okay. And that's what happens. Jericho is destroyed, but Rahab and her family are protected. She makes her home, then, with the Israelites, and eventually she marries and has a son, and this son is an ancestor of Jesus, the Messiah. Rahab, a foreigner, an outsider, a prostitute, and Matthew makes a point of saying, part of Jesus' family. But again, he's not done. From Rahab, Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth in Obed, the father of Jesse. Now, Ruth is usually celebrated as one of the great love stories of the Bible, which it sort of is. But in Ruth, too, you see what is now becoming a recurring theme in this genealogy, a woman, a foreigner, with some scandal attached to her. The story of Ruth starts with a famine in Israel. The family that leaves Bethlehem and travels to Moab until the famine passes. That family is Naomi and her husband and her two sons. But instead of returning back to the land that God has given to her people, the covenant land, they stay in Moab. They've left God's land and God's people behind permanently, for all they know. The two sons marry Moabite women. One marries Orpah, one marries Ruth. Now understand something about the Moabites and how Israel thought of them. The origin of the Moabite people could be traced to Genesis 18 and to Abraham's nephew, Lot. Lot's two daughters get him drunk and sleep with him. They both get pregnant and bear sons, one of whom is named Moab and whose descendants become the Moabites. Not a glorious start to a nation. Centuries later, when Israel came to Canaan, three things happened with regard to Moab. First, they refused to let Israel cross their land, and Israel was forced to take a long detour. Second, the Moabite king hired a prophet to curse the Israelites. And third... The Moabite women seduced the Israelite men, which resulted in an orgy-like religious festival that saw God's people abandon God and give themselves over to sexual sin and the worship of Moabite idols. And as a result, the law said, Deuteronomy 23, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. And it's to Moab that Naomi and her family come to live. Her sons marry Moabite women. Now, Moabite women would have been the subject of any dirty jokes that Israelites would have told. So Naomi is not exactly a deeply religious person. Don't kid ourselves. Naomi's husband eventually dies, and then both of her sons die. And Naomi and Orpah and Ruth now are all widows. So Naomi, who is now an embittered old woman, decides to return home to Bethlehem. And amazingly, Ruth decides to go with her. Now, imagine the risk that Ruth is taking to come and live among the Israelites. But she does it. She ends up marrying a respected man, Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. But how it happens is, or almost is, a little scandalous. Don't think that this is a nice, clean, biblical romance. I don't think that it is. Ruth notices that Boaz has been eyeing her. Naomi sees an opportunity to snag a husband for Ruth in a way that she herself then will get looked after. And Naomi is apparently willing to have Ruth use what she's got and sends her out to seduce Boaz, and it's only Boaz's integrity that sets the story on a new trajectory. He does desire Ruth, but he sets out immediately to find a way to marry her legitimately, which he does, and the son of Boaz and Ruth is Obed, who is the grandfather of David, Israel's great king and an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. So Ruth, like Rahab and Tamar before her, a foreigner, an outsider, some scandal attached to her, and all included in Jesus' family, as is Bathsheba, who Matthew includes but does not actually mention by name. Verse 6, Jesse, the father of King David, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. This is probably after Goliath, the most well known episode in David's life, and David doesn't look nearly as good here. David's armies are somewhere at war, but David is not with them. He's walking on his palace roof one evening and looks down at a neighboring house and happens to see a woman bathing. She's beautiful. And immediately, David has her sent for. She's brought to the palace. David sleeps with her. and Before too long, she sends word to him that she is pregnant. And suddenly, this whole scenario is a bomb ready to go off. The woman's name is Bathsheba, and she is the wife of Uriah. Uriah is not a Jew, but a Hittite, and probably a mercenary. He's one of David's best warriors from David's early days before he was king. Uriah is named in 1 Chronicles as one of the elite, one of David's mighty men. So Uriah and David have been through a lot together. They know each other well. They have fought side by side for years. And now, while Uriah is at war for David, David sleeps with his wife and gets her pregnant. And now David has a problem. But he makes a lame attempt to solve it. He calls Uriah home from the battle, gets him drunk, hoping that he'll go home, sleep with his wife, and everything will be solved. But Uriah has more honor than David, and as a show of solidarity with his fellow soldiers, he does not sleep with his wife, but sleeps in the courtyard instead. So now David is desperate to cover up his sins. So David sends Uriah back to battle, instructs his general to send Uriah on a suicide mission, which he does, and so Uriah is killed. David then takes Bathsheba to wife, and except for a few people who probably wondered at the timing, Bathsheba gives birth, and the problem just goes away. But God does not let David off the hook. David has committed adultery and then essentially murder in order to cover up his sin, And as a natural consequence, and as a judgment of God, David's life after that, his domestic life, spirals out of control, and murder and lust and deceit become the pattern among David's children. In addition, the baby born to Bathsheba dies. But she becomes pregnant again, and the second child is named Solomon, and it is through his line that the Messiah will be born. So Matthew again draws attention to the scandal in the story. By not even mentioning Bathsheba by name, but referring to her as the one who had been Uriah's wife, he's highlighting the scandalous circumstances in which she became attached to the royal family. So again, a woman, possibly a foreigner, a Hittite, sexual scandal, and in the Messiah's family line. It's worth noting that this is not an anti-woman bias in Matthew. In the stories of Tamar and Bathsheba particularly, it is the base character of Judah and David that is at the heart of the story. There's one more woman who makes the list. It is Mary, Jesus' mother. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Who is called Christ? Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, but he is the legal, the genealogical father of Jesus. And it was, of course, appropriate in that culture to trace Jesus' line through then Joseph and onward backward. But here, Matthew, again, steps outside of Jewish convention. Joseph, the father of Jesus, but makes a point of saying that Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. And he's implicitly acknowledging the scandal surrounding Jesus' own birth, that he was the son of Mary, but not biologically of Joseph. And then from here, Matthew will go on to give the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Unique birth, and we'll look at those next week and the week following. So, five women in a genealogy where women had no business showing up. And what women? At least three, probably four out of the five, were not Jews. All five of their stories contain sexual scandal prostitution, seduction, adultery, pregnancy out of wedlock. Now, if Matthew was just tracing Jesus' pedigree, down through the line of kings to David and beyond to the patriarchs Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, he could have very well, very easily have done that without mentioning Bathsheba and Tamar and Rahab. So don't just go thinking that this is a boring list of names, not at all. When you think about it, this is a fascinating read, and there's something going on here. And all of Matthew's Jewish readers would have been sitting up in their seats with their radar alert. Matthew is doing this pretty deliberately. The question is, what is Matthew doing? Matthew is declaring to the Jews that Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah, but he is also correcting their understanding of what that Messiah would be like and what the Messiah's priorities would be. To a Jewish nation who thought that because God had chosen them, he must love only them, Matthew reminds that there would be a blessing for all nations, and so he includes three, maybe four, non-Israelite women. To a culture in which women were undervalued, Matthew makes a point of including not just one, but five in Jesus' genealogy. To a religious culture that prized an externally pious performance, Matthew reminds that the patriarch of the tribe of Judah, from whom the, the people got the name the Jews, and the great king of Israel had performed profoundly disgraceful deeds. The line from Abraham to the Messiah is not all perfect and clean, it is messy, it is scandalous. And if you think your family is dysfunctional and has problems, Jesus says, man, you got nothing on my family. There's no other reason for Matthew to step outside the convention except to draw attention to the fact that in God's people and in Jesus' family, there are unsavory characters, depravity, and there is scandal. And I haven't even mentioned yet some of the other kings in Jesus' genealogy. Joram, who introduced the worship of Baal on a grand scale and was a son-in-law of Ahab and Jezebel. Ahaz, who sacrificed his sons in the fire. Manasseh, who had so many innocent people killed that the Bible says the streets of Jerusalem ran with blood. Now this is all, I think, of overwhelming import to us. For it shows that there must be room for us, too, in God's family. We are outsiders and misfits and sinners. We've been scandalous. We have lied. We've been addicted. We've committed adultery in action or in thought. We've hated. We've been base and not honorable. We've gossiped and then been angry when we find out that people have talked about us. We know what it's like to be on the margins, and we have marginalized others. We have hurt others, and we have been hurt by others. And we serve a Lord who says, I've always had misfits and sinners in my family, and I wouldn't have it otherwise. So come, you belong to me. Martin Luther wrote, It is as if God intended for people to hear this genealogy and say to themselves, Oh, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. See, he even puts them in his family tree. And if Jesus did not identify himself with sinners, with the outcasts, he would not have been born in a stable to a teenaged virgin who was far from home. And if we think that Jesus will not accept us, or if we think that he will not accept the broken sinners that we know, and think that we are better than they, then we have never been to the manger. We've reduced Christmas to a candle atmosphere and time with family. And we've truncated Christmas. We have cheapened it. In fact, we've taken Jesus out of it. So to come to the manger is by necessity to come to the cross. For Jesus came to save sinners, because God loves sinners. This is how God demonstrated his love toward us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So it is from sinners and for sinners that Jesus came and died. For you, for me. For others, And this Christmas, that is why we come to the manger not only to worship Christ, the newborn king, but we also invite ourselves, come, let us adore him. The Savior who has come from a line of sinners for the sake of us who are sinners, We don't just honor him as king and say say, he is so great and worship, sing great songs. We adore him. We love him. What kind of God would do that? From a line of kings, be born in a stable for our sake. Isn't that astonishing? That is why the book of Matthew and the whole New Testament, which tells the story of Jesus, begins with this list of names. It's for our sake, so that we will understand who Jesus is and how Jesus thinks of us. And with that in mind, we can walk through this Christmas season with comfort and joy and peace and worship and adoration and love. And I hope, I pray, that you will do exactly that and that I will as well. Merry Christmas. Let me pray. Jesus, it has happened so often that when we read about you and read what you have said and what you have done, we are absolutely stunned by the things that you prioritize, which are very different than what we would have thought you'd prioritize. You've prioritized us. Not because we're religious, not because we go to church, but precisely because we were desperately in need of being saved from our sins, as everyone on the planet and in history has also been. So today we just say thank you for coming in the way that you did. We will adore you this season. And it is in your name by which we approach God the Father and say together, Amen. Amen.